0: well good morning everybody how are you so good to be with you want to welcome everybody watching online everybody who's here for the first time i've got some friends here visiting and uh, if you're back for the first time in a long time also welcome can we welcome all of our guests everybody who's watching online thanks so much for being a part of this service um you know there's a verse in the bible that says that uh, when jesus returns that the dead in christ will rise first, right? But there's also a little verse, uh, I think there's a commentary that says that those that showed up on spring forward Day showed up to church, will go first, like before. <laughs> so you're like pre, pre-rapture people here, so um, well done to you. Uh, so I want to say just a word about New Hope Eurasia. We've had a, uh, I've had a long-time relationship with these guys, love what they're doing, gospel work, Gospel work in both in what they say and what they do. They are um, they're part of rescuing people from sex trafficking, also rescuing orphans. They they have a heart for reaching young people, and especially you see Oleg's heart when these little kids are coming across the border. They've been walking for 12, 16 hours, and um, so he just says, "Please pray for the babies. Please pray for the little bitty ones as they're with mom. They don't know what in the world's happened." And uh, they're, they're, uh, one of the things that they did this past week was take a bus full of 50 people from uh, Ukraine through Moldova to Romania, and they're able to have these gospel conversations with them as they go. And so um, I've mentioned this before, but our response as a church is what we should do as followers of Jesus. We pray. And we put on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So if you're feeling heavy, the best thing to do is to worship Jesus. And we gather every Wednesday now for for a time of prayer and worship. Um, And it's just the kind of thing you would want it to be, like just friends gathered around a circle and praying like a family. And, And then we want to do practical things like this. And then the last part of this is in this season, I know most of you have heard me say this already, but in this season uh, where there, you know, there's, there's bad news fatigue happening or maybe, uh, maybe you're, you're in a place where you're feeling unhealthy mentally, don't do this alone. We wanna be a part of helping you process this. There's a principle I learned a long time as a pastor and that's this. Um, what's most personal is actually what's most universal. You think you're alone, you're not alone. And so the hardest thing to do sometimes is just to reach out and say, I can help, or I need help. And uh, you would be so surprised at what happens um, when you do, when you make that step. Okay, we are in the middle of a series called Jesus is King. We've been going through the book of Mark together, and what an amazing uh, season this has been. What an amazing book this is. Mark, if you don't know, is one of four gospel accounts. Think of four documentaries told from a different angle or from a different voice uh, to to express something about the life and the way of Jesus. And uh, we are in Mark chapter 14. In the timeline, we are right toward the last couple of days before Jesus is crucified. And um, in, in uh, in the last few episodes, what we've seen Jesus do is ride into Jerusalem as a royal king on a donkey. We've seen him flip tables. We've seen him marvel at this gift of this widow. And just most recently, Jesus turned and gave final judgment on the temple in Jerusalem. That's going to play into today's uh, passage as well. Okay, Mark chapter 14 is where we are today. We're gonna read verses one through 11. And then we're going to pray and jump right into the message. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was two days before the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. You can see what was on their minds with Rome in the background, looming in the background. While he was in Bethany, this is Jesus, at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came and interrupted these men surrounding, uh, reclining at table, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She, She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. You'll always have the poor with you. You can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could, Jesus said. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him." Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving these words. Thank you that uh, they are living, they're active, These words are expressing something that happened, but also something that happens. They are true, and they are truth. Do what only you can do over these next few moments, Lord Jesus. Take the limitations of my words and of our hearing and do something supernatural. Speak to us right where we are exactly what we need to hear in this time and in this season, in Jesus' name, amen. One spring, my little brother and I had been watching track and field competitions, and we decided to make a little track competition in our little home in uh, Lake Gentilesca, North Carolina. Ten laps around the house would suffice. We would race one another. And I'm three years older. So this was my idea to just show how fast I was. Gonna beat my little three-year you know, younger brother in this track race. And so we're going round and round the house, and it's classic tortoise and hare. I'm I'm just I'm winning, and then I'm just like climbing trees and riding my bicycle, and then sure enough, lap 10, John, my little brother, catches up with me, and he catches me by surprise. And what also surprises me is what I did next. I've never, I had never seen anyone do this. It was not premeditated in, uh, almost by instinct. It was almost as if I was meant to do this. I extended my stride just long enough to trip him. He falls into the little flower bed and specifically hits his head on the stone border, smacks his forehead right on the, on the uh, stone border, and he hits hard. He breaks the stone in half, and he looks up at me like, what did you just do? Massive knot, I mean, like cartoonish knot on the front of his head. And he is crying and screaming, I know I'm about to get a whooping. And I also felt maybe for the first time, like the worst person in the world. What did I do with that feeling? What do you do when you feel like the worst person in the world? Well, I started laughing at him, of course. Uh, I start, and John, a couple of days later, this is kind of a classic family, Posey family story. He had a, 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 an egg-shaped bruise right on the forehead, multicolored, For Easter, and so you better believe I mercilessly made fun of him. Every time I saw him, I felt terrible, but I couldn't help myself. I started mocking him. In fourth grade, um, I was taking a makeup test. My family had been sick, and so I came back and was taking a makeup test on a Saturday and went to a little private Christian school, and this girl who was in my class had taken the test just the day before, and she comes in, and she sees. She says, hey, what are you doing? And she, she looks down, and she sees the test. She recognizes it. And she, in multiple choice, I circled the wrong answer. And she looked, and, she's, and she gave me this look like, I think that's the wrong answer. So I erased it. And I looked up at her, and I circled another one. And so then I just, took me four times, finally got the right answer. And that little episode, no big deal, nothing. I mean, that's, that's no big deal. Took good and bad into my own hands. I did what any of us would have done, And that Monday, she had a crisis of conscience and told the principal that she had helped me cheat. My dad got word, and I got a whooping in the principal's office. Uh, I felt like the worst person in the world. In seventh grade, I got invited to a party party one of those parties where it's an equal number of girls and boys, first party like that. I didn't know what was happening. Spin the bottle was happening. And I started kissing this girl in the closet, and I had a crisis of conscience. I felt like the worst person in the world. We didn't have any, like, we didn't have any relationship. What is this? time and time again through my life when i've encountered sin there have been consequences to sin that i didn't know what to do with when i have done something either on purpose or on accident where it brought me to this this crisis of conscience this place where my soul was not at rest something was off which is really what sin means something was off in my world And when something is off, when you feel like the worst person in the world, you have one of two options. You can either go the way of Jesus or the way of Herod. Now, Herod is not seen in this or not named in this text we just read, but his impact is all over these few words in Mark chapter 14. We see the impact of Herod in the way that the scribes and the Pharisees are acting, their shrewdness. They have a kill Jesus policy. Herod the Great, of course, tried to kill Jesus by mass genocide of children when Jesus was being born. Herod is not known in the world, the way that Jesus is today, but the way of Herod still is. That contrast intrigues me. Mark 14, verse 1 and 2 says, in those two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, the chief priests and scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. During the Season of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jerusalem was at fever pitch during such festivals. Jewish pilgrims from around the Mediterranean world f- uh, filled Jerusalem, so that the city swelled to many times its normal population. So I want you to picture this. This put the Sanhedrin, the kind of the ruling religious authorities, put them on edge which is why the chief priests and the scribes were kind of acting the, the way that they were, because they sought to maintain the peace in order to, put, to protect their positions within the rock, uh, occupying Romans. And the Romans were also on high alert in su- during such times, being well aware that resentment on the part of the Jewish people and their revolutionary fervor was pulsing through the visiting crowds. All of Israel was longing for a particular kind of Messiah, a particular way of a particular king. And the last great king of Israel in the time of Jesus was Herod the Great. And he really was, by all measurements, a great king. What he did for Israel was astounding. Eugene Peterson describes the way of Herod versus the way of Jesus very well. And as we read these words, out, I want you to think about two characters from the text, Mary and Judas. Now, Mary was the unnamed person who broke the, the, the alabaster jar and, pour, and worshiped Jesus. Which do you see is the way of Mary, and which do you see is the way of Jesus when I talk about the way of Herod Or sorry, way of Mary, way of Judas, way of Herod, way of Jesus. Pardon me, my uh, iPad just fritzed out just a little bit here. Okay. Okay. So the leading leaders of the beginning of the Christian era were Jesus and Herod. It's interesting to observe what has happened in the 2,000 years since. Jesus is the name that continues to be recognized and honored, but Herod is the name obscure and of interest only to historians, uh, but he is the leader who is most often than not followed even by Christians. Peterson says, I'm interested in that contrast and its implications. I'm interested in how that happens. How do we slip into following a way that is not the way of Jesus? Herod set the leadership style for the world into which Jesus was born. At the millennial pivot marked by Jesus' birth and Herod's death, Rome was well-established as the world empire with the dominant military political presence of of that age. Herod reproduced that power in conspicuous consumption in display on smaller scale in Israel. But in reproducing it, he was no way inferior to it. In some ways, Herod outdid Rome. uh, 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 Every one of his palace complexes, and he built seven of them, were larger than what the Caesars had built in Rome. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the scale of that. Think about what that would have done to you if you were an Israelite, and all of a sudden you see your king outdoing the Caesars. How would that have captured your imagination as to a way of life? He ruled Israel for 34 years. It's impossible not to be impressed with Herod. Politically, he was able to manipulate power-hungry Rome, the many factions of religious Jews swelling numbers and uh, secularizing Hellenists into some semblance of order and prosperity. Herod was not a religious man, but he was a very aggressive missionary for Greek and Roman culture the art and architecture and literary works and dramatic productions and athletic prowess and performances of Rome found their way into Israel. His building projects were just absolutely stunning. Many of them you can still see today. The amphitheaters, the hippodrome, palaces, shrines, fortifications, aqueducts, forums, roads, and his crowning achievement was, anybody know? The Solomonic Temple, the rebuilt temple of Israel, thanks to Herod. Everywhere you go, still in Israel, you see the evidence of Herod's building projects. And here's the astounding thing Jesus ignored the whole business. Jesus spent his life walking on roads through towns dominated by Herod's palaces, his buildings, his policies, shaped by Herod's power and at the mercy of Herod's whims, and he never once gave them the time of day. I love that about Jesus. Our astonishment increases when we realize that Jesus virtually had the same agenda as Herod. Jesus had set out to establish a comprehensive government that would shape the behavior and capture the imaginations of all the people of the world. Jesus was not satisfied with working out a private righteousness with a few people withdrawing from the mainstream uh, of worldly life and creating little enclaves of love in which people could cultivate peace with God through study and prayer and good works. That's what the Essenes did. But Jesus was not of that way. He had his eyes on the world. God so loved the world. Go into all the world. Jesus launched his public ministry by saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Time's up. We're inaugurating a new government, kingdom, Jesus uses the word kingdom and he did so repeatedly and prominently here in the Gospel of Mark. He's speaking with the largest, most comprehensive terms available to him. Nothing we do or feel or say is excluded from kingdom. This is God's kingdom. That means that everything that goes on under God's rule is penetrated by God's rule, is judged by God's rule, and is included in God's rule. Think about this. Every one of your personal thoughts, even right now, your actions this past week, your feelings, yes, that's part of the kingdom, but also the stock market in New York, any famine in Africa, your first grandchild born last night in Chilliwack, poverty in India, the hate and violence in Eastern Europe, sex trafficking in El Paso, the Wednesday night prayer meetings in Richmond, the bank mergers being negotiated in Toronto, migrants picking avocados throughout uh, California, everything, absolutely everything, large and small is in the scope of the kingdom of God, and Jesus audaciously says, he is that king. Jesus believed and believes that, he, that his work is to establish that kingdom on earth, beginning in Israel, but not confined to Israel. And right before his eyes, think of a little boy Jesus. Teenage Jesus, 20-something Jesus, walking through Israel and seeing the hippodrome, seeing the amphitheaters, walking on Herod's roads, seeing the aqueducts, seeing the art and the culture in the entertainment and the sports. Think about Jesus surrounded by this world and yet only doing what he sees his father doing, stiff-arming rejecting the way of Herod. Herod's architectural splendor gave everyone a sense that their king was all-powerful and majestic, and he had gathered a very diverse population of Jews and Romans and pagans and Greeks, diverse, uncongenial political parties, and he had somehow hammered out a kind of working unity among them. Here's the problem with a kingdom other than the king of Jesus. It almost works. Technology almost works. Education almost works. Progress almost works. Utopia almost works. I've said this before. Santa Barbara almost works. It almost works. The beauty, the food, it almost works. And the hardest habits to give up the hardest kingdoms to get out of are the ones that almost work. Herod was Israel's latest greatest king, but he also happened to be the worst person in the world. During the last years of his life, his proclivities toward cruelty accelerated. He began virtual—he became a virtual monster, hated by everyone, massacring, massacring at a whim, murdering his own children and his wives. But back in Rome, he found a friend and a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. Augustus was Herod's friend, and Augustus admired Herod, and he had this famous line that could have served as a fitting epitaph over Herod's grave. I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Herod knew that when he died, there would not be mourning, but there would be celebration throughout the country. So at the time of his death, as it approached, when he was about 70 years old and desperately ill, Herod tried to ensure widespread lamentation by arresting elders from every village in Israel and jailing them in Jericho right next to his burial mountain. The instructions were given that the elders would be killed from every land in Israel, every village, so that there would be widespread mourning throughout Israel at Herod's funeral. Unfortunately for Herod, but fortunately for the elders, his orders were not carried out two ways of leadership that are still with us today. What do you do when you feel like the worst person in the world? What do you do when you're face to face with your sin? You can take good and bad into your own hands. You can believe the voice that says that more than enough is not enough or you can pursue the way of Jesus you can make yourself vulnerable to the one who's pursuing you mark 14:3 says while he was at bethany at the house of simon the leper he was reclining at the table in luke's version of the story simon is called simon the pharisee if those are parallel accounts in This version of the story, Mark's version, Simon is a leper. Both of those things could be true. You could be a Pharisee and a leper. But here's what couldn't be true. Simon can't be a leper and have people over to his house for food. Something happened to Simon. Someone happened to Simon. Simon apparently had taken his, you talk about worst person in the world. Unclean, I'm unclean. A person with leprosy every day was faced with this idea that they were the worst people in the world. A sickness was not just a sickness in the ancient world. You were sick because you were bad, because God was judging you, and Jesus rescued Simon. Simon the leper was no longer a leper. What do you do when you're the worst person in the world? You come to Jesus And Jesus comes to you. A woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume. This was, as many of you know, 300 denarii. Denarii was one day's wage. So 300 days. This is almost a year's salary. So very famously, uh, a few years ago, when the Boston Red Sox won the World Series, yeah, I got a Red Sox fan. Uh, Do you remember this? Big Poppy? drank a $100,000 bottle of champagne. $100,000 bottle of champagne. What do you think the, pe- the, the, the people who were cleaning up after Big Poppy were thinking about that $100,000? What could you have done with that $100,000? The Boston Bruins did the same thing uh, a little bit later. Now it's kind of become a thing. Drink a 100,000 bottle of champagne when you do something big. Jesus is coming to the end of his life, just a couple of days left. What is he doing? He's having an intimate dinner with friends. Who is this unnamed woman? Well, we know according to the gospel of John that her name is Mary. John chapter 12 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one who had, Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with Jesus. Simon, Lazarus, Jesus. We don't know who else is there. Possibly other disciples. And Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Okay, that doesn't mean, that just sounds kind of gross to us. Wiped his feet with her hair. What do you think was actually happening? Well, in that culture, a woman kept her hair up because long hair was a sign of fertility. If you were taking your hair down, it was a sign that you were available. It was an attraction kind of a thing. And so when she takes her hair down, She's making herself vulnerable to Jesus. This was probably a family heirloom, this costly jar of perfume. She's taking the most. So so in addition to being worth $100,000 or equivalent a year's salary, it has family value. It's worth so much more to their family. Why would this woman break this jar, pour it over Jesus? Yes, we love Jesus. Why would she interrupt, which was... uh, totally against the decorum. A woman was not supposed to interrupt men talking. She interrupts this meal, and she begins to worship Jesus. She begins to cry. Her tears hit Jesus' feet. She begins to wash his filthy feet and pour this $100,000 bottle of champagne on Jesus, this pure nard, this priceless treasure. Why would she do this? who's around this circle? If this really is Mary. Jesus raised her brother from the dead. Some scholars think Simon the leper was her dad. Jesus, we don't know. Bible doesn't say, but it seems to me. By the way, get used to saying that. If somebody asks you a Bible question, it's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that. But it seems to me. Jesus healed Simon. And according to Luke chapter 7, Jesus also forgave the worst person in the world. Not Judas. Mary. You see, somewhere along Mary's path, she had believed that she was the worst person in the world. Somewhere along her path, A father who's a leper, that's judged by God. In that moment when her brother dies, that's judgment by God. She's a woman in a culture that looks down on women. That's judgment by God in that culture. And yet she was a person, she was a sinner. Luke says, what do you do with your worst person in the world status? We've got two options: You can hide or you can be vulnerable. You can run from your sin and run from Jesus, or you can run to Jesus. You can cover your sin or you can worship God. When the disciples ask Jesus, "How do we pray?" Jesus didn't say, start by saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. He said, start with worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Mary breaks the nard. She worships Jesus. She gets down on her feet. She begins to worship Jesus. And what happens? People who are caught up in the way of Herod are looking at this and They're shaming her for it, and Jesus won't let them do it. Jesus steps in and says, what she is doing is what she could do. In other words, she has pursued me with reckless abandon. In the kingdom of God, all estimations of cultural worth, money, status, achievement, All the things that Herod did, Jesus just declared them, hey, this temple's going to be, not one stone's left um, uh, upon another. Jesus declared them obsolete currency. Why do Christians give to the church? Why do Christians care about what happens across the world? Why did the Christian mindset so shape the world that the world actually has compassion on people? That's not, that's not a forever thing. That's a new thing in history. It's because of Jesus. Jesus has changed the way that we think about compassion. The only thing worth anything to the Christian is Jesus. Jesus oh, by the way, he's worth everything. Judas had an opportunity. He had every opportunity. He was invited in to be an apostle. He was invited close to Jesus. Think of the things that Judas saw. And yet, he was still captivated by the voice of another. The voice that says, you're more than enough is never gonna be enough. What is Judas chasing? He's chasing down that thought that he's the worst person in the world. He's trying to cover his sin. The only thing you can do that can eradicate that that feeling of the worst person in the world, that feeling of sin, is to be covered in the love and the grace and the blood of Jesus. But that starts with worship. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, you really can do it. You really can become like Jesus. You really can become like Mary. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. At the end of Luke's narrative, Jesus says this. Did you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. And that's why she loved me much. But the one who has, is forgiven little loves little. And then she, he turns to Mary and, she's, and he says, your sins are forgiven. In the next couple of days, we're going to see Judas continue to entertain this idea of should I, persuaded by the voice of Herod, or should I be persuaded by the voice of Jesus? And one of the things that is astounding to me is how Jesus pursues Judas all the way to the end. He truly does love the worst person in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are good. You are the pursuer of mankind. You are the one who uh, gave your all. This gift was just an echo. This gift of Mary's was an echo, a, a, a prequel, a taste, a foretaste of what you did for all of mankind. You gave. You held nothing back. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us. Thank you, Jesus, That even now, even now, that if there are people within the sound of my voice, that if they feel distant from you, you want them to know they don't have to. You're the king of their heart. You're the king of their thoughts. You're the Lord of all. And we surrender to you in Jesus' name.